Almighty everlasting God, who in thy beloved Son, King of the whole world, hast willed to restore all things anew, grant in thy mercy that all the families of nations rent asunder by the wound of sin may be subjected to thy most gentle rule. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear Father, dear friends, we come to this wonderful feast of Christ the King. And the first thing that strikes one is why it was instituted only in 1925. In the very beginning, and that is the reason why our Lord was crucified, he claims to be the King. Clearly, in the Gospel today, he is, he is brought on trial because he is a king. That is the, 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 the complaint that is made against him. Even so much so that when, uh, when Pilate said, Behold your king, the Jews responded, We have no king but Caesar. So clearly, from the very beginning of our Lord's ministry, he shows himself as king. And it's clearly understood. And because it's understood, our Lord must die. So why then did it take until 1925 until this feast was promulgated by Pius XI with this encyclical Quas Primas? Why did it take so long? Well, historically, we know that by 1925, the world had been in the turmoil of war, the First World War, the Communist Revolution, and all the, the trials and the sufferings that came from the World War. So Pius XI saw that and saw as the solution to that war, to that hatred, to the spilling of blood, the institution of this feast of Christ the King. So that if we would honor Christ as king, if we would place Christ as king in the nations, then there would not be war. If we honored Christ as our king, there would not be war. So clearly then, the difficulty is that we don't place Christ as our king in nations. Following from that then, it must be a, a deduction, it must be seen that if we have turmoil in our homes, it is because we don't have Christ as our King in our home. If the Holy Father in 1925 saw the necessity of having Christ as King of Nations in order for there to be peace, and because the family is the basis of society... How much more important is it then that in our families Christ is king? If for 2,000 years the Jews have been roaming the face of the earth because they would not have Christ as king, we see the consequences of denying this, this, this honor to Christ, this place that belongs to Christ. We see the consequences, the physical consequences. When we reject the kingship of Christ, we are filled with turmoil. We are filled with unrest, not only as nations, but as families.
I think it's clear that we see in the traditional families there's a, there's a, tremendous, um, a tremendous difference as compared to the world's families. Chesterton says that the saint is he who is contrary to his age. In today's families, we see an incredible, an unbelievable, an unrealistic amount of, of anarchy, of disunion, of unrest, the divorce, the separation, the dysfunctionality. It's everywhere. And so as families, what is our response? What is our reaction? Following the words of Chesterton then, that the saint is he who is contrary to his age, as families, we must be entirely different than the families in the world. We can talk about the, the social rights of Jesus Christ in the, in, the, in the world, in kingdoms, but we can't do anything about it, in a sense. You see, we live in a democracy, supposedly, um, and we all have a right to vote, and we all have a voice in the government, but so much of that is just balderdash. It's just useless, and many times it's a waste of time, seemingly. Where the kingship of Christ for us takes place is in our homes. And in order for that to take place in our homes, it must first take place in our heart. We as Americans, I think, have a very difficult time understanding what a king is. I was speaking the other day to, to a man, and he was very, very open. And we, we spoke about the problems of America and, and uh, the abomination of desolation and all the things happening in our government and in our world. And he was like, well, Father, you know, you're almost, you're, you're, you're sliding to monarchy. And I says, well, maybe. He says, no, I just, I just, I can't. You know, kings are so bad. And, you know, they, they make a rule and, you know, everybody has to obey him. And, and it's only one rule. And, you know, it's just, it's not right. He says, I, I, I don't want to disagree and I don't want to offend you, but I, 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 I just can't. Because in our, in our understanding as Americans, a king is an evil thing. And we, like the British and the French, would kill them. Because, well, we don't like them. They're, they're, they, have, they have all this authority. And they can tell us what to do and what not to do. And they can tax us. And, well, we don't like kings. It's a, it's a, it's a nasty word. It, it's, a, it's a bad concept. We're, we're free people. See, we live in a democracy. We can vote. And so we, we instinctively, perhaps, because of our culture or lack thereof, are antagonistic to the concept of kingship. And so, in a sense, when it comes to the kingship of Christ, we kind of agree with it theoretically. And we're like, oh, yeah, that's nice. Jesus is king. Well, thank God he's way up there. Because when it comes to the practical day-to-day living, we're like, well, no, but we live in America. And so that's kingship and this is life. What we must do is reconcile our lives with our faith. Not our faith with our life, but our life with our faith. And so our lives must be lived in such a way that Christ is truly our king. 
perhaps we won't be able to place to place Christ as king of our country. Looks very, very doubtful. I mean, Obama says that we don't even live in a Christian country. And practically speaking, he's true. It's right. Because we're so far from what it is to be Christian anymore. But we, we might not have this, this power to place Christ as king of our country. But it begins in our hearts and in our families. And how does that happen? Well, it happens with the men. And in a, in a different sense, it happens with the women. But I think the burden lies at the foot of the men, and especially of the husbands, of the fathers of families. If we accept in our hearts and in our mind the kingship of Christ then our actions and our thoughts must follow that belief. Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi. The way we believe, is the, or the way we pray, is the way we believe, is the way we act. If we truly believe in the kingship of Christ in our heart, and in our mind, then we will act that kingliness. We will live out that, that rule of Christ. And... You have no choice. You are not free to accept Christ as king. Because the consequences are patent. They're open. They're there for the world to see. If you reject Christ as the king of your heart and your mind, you will not have peace. You will be like the Jews who roam the face of the earth because they have rejected Christ. You will be like the nations of the world who are at war this day because they reject Christ as king. To reject Christ as king in our heart and in our mind is utter folly. So then the question is, how do I accept Christ as the king of my heart and my mind? It's interesting, you know, we are all told we have to obey. And especially with the children, we tell the children, well, you have to be obedient. And it's one of the most common sins confessed by children. I have been disobedient. It's one of the evangelical counsels that our Lord teaches us in the Gospels. It's one of the vows that the religious take to be obedient. The difficulty is that when we become adults, and especially as fathers of families, as husbands of wives, we think that obedience has now been has been eliminated because I'm the king. So I don't have to obey. Everyone has to obey me now. And I think perhaps that's one of the fallacies and one of the errors which make it difficult for us to have Christ as king of our heart and home. So obedience. Men must be obedient to the dictates of Christ the king. Men must seek the teachings of Christ as king of their heart and their mind. What does our Lord demand of you as a man, as a husband, as a father? What does our Lord ask of you? Where does our Lord draw you? 
Which is the path he shows you? And this we learn a lot from the scriptures and clearly from the teachings of the church, from the moral law. What are you called upon as a man, as a husband, and as a father to do? How does it affect your life, practically speaking? Certainly, there is the necessity of avoiding sin, clearly. Everyone is bound to that. So you might think, oh, well, yeah, well, we're all bound to that, so that doesn't affect me specifically. It does. To have Christ in our hearts and mind is to avoid sin, because obviously when sin enters, Christ leaves. He is forced to leave. And so the life of grace is the first step, shall we say, in that accepting of the kingship of Christ in our hearts and mind. But then it's more than that. To avoid sin, as St. Thomas says, is the first step to sanctity. He teaches us that there are three steps to sanctity. The avoidance of sin, the doing of good, which is far more difficult. To avoid sin is quite simple. It's a negation. I just won't do it. So it's, it's an exercise of the will, but it's a negative exercise of the will. I'm just not going to sin. I'm not going to do something. Whereas to do good is a positive act of the will. I have to make myself do something. Not just not doing, but actually doing. And so the doing of good as the second step to holiness is more difficult than the avoidance of sin. But it's the second step to do good. That means over and above of what we're bound to do. Too often as Catholics, we have this sense that as long as I avoid mortal sin, I'm good. That's all that God asks. I'm good. I haven't sinned this week. I'm good. But we are called to do good. Not just to be good, but to do good. And then the third step of sanctity is to live in the presence of Almighty God. And St. Thomas says that is, that is the culmination of, of, these, of this life. To live in the presence of God. Because that is the, in heaven, that is the beatific vision, the lumen gloriae. To live in the presence of Almighty God. That is beatitude, that is happiness. So as men, you are called to avoid sin. Yes. You are called upon to do good. And in which way do you do good? And to whom do you do good? As men, as husbands, and as fathers, your vocation, your calling, your duty to goodness is if you're married first to your wife. Sometimes it's very difficult. But that is your calling, to do good to your wife. As a father, it's to do good to your children. That doesn't mean you spoil your children or your wife, for that matter. But there is a goodness that you are called upon that far exceeds any other non-Catholic, any other Christian, shall we say. Because your goodness must proceed from the love of God, from grace, from a supernatural motive. So if your wife is a pain in an ag, you are good to her, not just simply because she's your wife, but because Christ has called you unto that. 
And so your love for her is a supernatural as well as natural love and kindness. To your children, it doesn't mean that you spoil them and let them do whatever they want because you're good to them. No, sometimes you must discipline them very strongly. But you are the one who leads your sons especially and your daughters to understand what the kingship of Christ consists in. In a very practical manner. You are the king of your family. You are the king of your home. And in you, your children will see and your wife will see the kingship of Christ. You are the image, shall we say, of Christ's kingship. Now you might be a bad image, which is a tragedy. And what is your response? Is to accept your weakness and to improve that image. You know, we, we have a, t- a terrible thing in this world and it's called the computer. And somebody was showing me the other day how even on the little camera, the digital cameras, you can touch up the photos. You know, they can take a picture of me and I'll be like a little crooked or my smile will be crooked or something. And then they take the camera and they just go beep, 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 beep. And they, they straighten it all out. And I look like Superman. I'm like, whoa, that's a great picture. Who's that? Well, that's you, Father. Whoa. Well, you see, and we get the, we get that thought in our, in our mind, though. We think, well, if I'm not the real image of Christ in my family, oh, I'll just put up some, put some makeup on, and oh, there. I'll say a rosary with my family. That'll make it all better. We're, we're not on the computer. This is real life. And I'm sure that all of you have an idea of who Christ is. I'm sure all of you have an idea of how good Christ is. I mean, from the scriptures, from the little, even if you've never opened the Bible in your life, just from the words that are read in the masses that you've been assisted at, you you clearly see through the Gospels the goodness of Christ. Over and over again, we see the goodness of Christ. So the dumbest of you, the most ignorant, the most illiterate of you, will have a sense of Christ of Christ-likeness. And so then your obligation then is to make that Christ-likeness appear in your very being, in your heart and in your mind. Perhaps you say, that's impossible, Father. I'm I'm just a mortal man and I'm very weak at that. So that's impossible. And don't put me up to that because I'm not going to scandalize my wife and my children in, in having them think that I'm like Christ. Our Lord tells you to do this. Our Lord tells you to be like him. Our Lord orders it. Our Lord invites it. Our Lord begs it of you. And so because St. Thomas says, our Lord never asks us anything impossible. He will then give you that grace to be like Christ. And so in your heart, you must place Christ there. You must bring in your heart Christ. And so then, of course, with him in your heart, he then must influence your mind. And because of that, then your thoughts are going to be inspired by his presence. Your words will be inspired by his presence. Your actions will be inspired by his presence. And then your wife and your children 
will not have such a great difficulty in making you, in respecting you as the king of the home. So perhaps it's a tall order, but our Lord calls and our Lord gives the grace. And so it's incumbent upon the men to live that Christ, that kingliness, that Christliness. And then the wives help your husbands by putting them up on that pedestal. Because when you respect your your husband as the king of your home, then it's just natural. He will feel impelled and inspired to try to live up to that. And the children will respect him as well. Once the wife respects the husband, then the children will respect their father and mother. If the wife does not respect the husband, the children will not respect the mother. You might say, no, no, Father, you got that wrong. If the wife doesn't respect the husband, then the children won't respect the father. No. When the wife doesn't respect the husband, the children don't respect the, the mother. There's an order. So when the wife respects the husband, even though he might be just a loser, then the children will respect the father. So it's important then for the men to live up to this command, this order, this request, this, this plea of our Lord, and for the wife to assist the husband in that by her demeanor, by her encouragement, by her love, by her kindness. And then the children will be inspired to place God, to place Christ as their king in their hearts and in their mind. Let us pray to the Virgin Mother, whose own son was the king, who had no fault when it came to honoring her son as king. Let us pray to her and ask her for this grace, that as men... You might have the grace and the strength to live that kingliness as women that you might respect men in that way. And as children that you might look up to your fathers as kings of your families representing to you the kingship of Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.